And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Good morning. It's good to be with you, worshiping our triune God together. It's a special time of year, we know that, Advent. We gather, we worship, and we wonder at the Incarnation. So, Pastor Dave mentioned during the exhortation, but beyond gathering for worship, I want to encourage you to participate and take advantage of the other events that we have throughout the week. Um, If you have questions on any of those, find me afterwards or find one of the elders. Well, so far this Advent, we've done um, an Advent series where first we looked at the first Advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. He came first to proclaim the good news of the kingdom and offer atonement through his death and resurrection. And then Pastor Dave preached the second week about the second coming of Christ, that we anticipate this coming, that when he returns, all will be put right. He will come for his bride, the church, and he will judge all of humanity. So we live in this time in between the two comings of Christ. We look back at his first coming with gratitude and we look forward to the second coming in hope. And then last week, we looked at the Trinity. We looked at each person of the Trinity. We looked at the Father and the Holy Spirit and their work in the incarnation. And I tried to give a, a crash course in the doctrine of the Trinity. So I won't review all the points, but as we turn and look at the sun this morning, it's important to keep those in mind as well. That there is one God and three equal but distinct persons. Each person is fully divine. Divine in their nature, but different in their, in their roles and how they work. The Father sent the Son. The Spirit conceived the Son. The Spirit overshadowed Mary to ensure that the incarnate Christ would be holy and sinless. And that this incarnate Christ would take on a second human nature. So now this morning we'll take a look at the role of the Son in the incarnation. The incarnation is the miracle of miracles. There's incredible signs throughout the Old and New Testaments. People get healed. Lives are spared from death through amazing events. There are even several people in the Bible who have been raised from the dead. But there is nothing else in the history of the world like the Incarnation. At the Incarnation, the inexhaustible, invisible, eternal, sovereign God became flesh. The invisible made visible, where spiritual and physical meet, and where God became man. The Word became flesh. He became flesh to reveal God to the world. And there's several aspects of the incarnation that we'll look at this morning from John's, John's passage. Each of these were present throughout the rest of scripture, 
But in Jesus, we see a greater fulfillment of these. He came to dwell with us. His glory was witnessed. And through him, we have received an even greater measure of grace, grace upon grace. So in Jesus, we've, in Jesus, the son, we have seen the invisible God, the invisible God made visible. So would you pray with me and help that we would prepare our hearts to hear this rightly? Pray that we would fight to be engaged and free from distraction. And pray that this sermon would help to move the needle, even if it's just slightly, towards a greater understanding of who our God is and who he became in the incarnation, that it would fuel our worship this coming week. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning in need of grace. We come in need of more spiritual food. So I ask that you would please feed us through your word and through your spirit this morning. I pray that we would behold the glory of Christ. I pray that our Christmas celebrations would be enhanced and empowered by the glory of Christ. So please feed us. Give us ears to hear and the eyes of faith to believe your word. Please stop distractions and quiet our minds and our hearts so that we would hear you this morning. And that our faith would be strengthened as a result. Thank you that you loved us before we loved you. Help us to love you more and give you all honor and glory this morning. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the incarnation is the greatest miracle. Jesus being the ultimate revelation of God. God revealed himself in a number of different ways through scripture, but the ultimate revelation of who God is, is through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the greatest revelation of God to humanity. He made the invisible God visible. So in our passage, we're going to look at four ways in his incarnation, how he is a greater revelation of God. We'll look at his, his dwelling word made flesh and dwelt among us. We'll look at the fact that his glory was witnessed by others, that he is the fullness of grace. And that through Jesus, We have seen the Father. We have access to the Father by seeing and beholding Jesus. So let's look at the first, that the the word dwelt among us. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the stage for this dwelling, this dwelling in the flesh, was set in what we talked about last week in, in Luke 1. God the Father, through his angel Gabriel, spoke to Mary on how the Son of God would be born from a human mother. And now here in John's gospel, he's describing the same event, but in a a different way. He calls the Son the Word, which goes all the way back to verse 1 of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so now in verse 14, John is making it clear that this is the Son that he's talking about. This is the Word that becomes flesh. So the divine Jesus 
takes on a second nature in the incarnation. He maintains his divine nature, but now he adds or, or takes on a second, a second nature, he takes on humanity. Romans 8 says he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. His nature was fully human, but without sin and the corruption that would come with that. So the second person of the Trinity takes on humanity. Two natures, one person. To help us to articulate this, I always, when we're talking about the deep things of God, I always rely on quotes from others. So here's a quote from a Puritan named Stephen Charnock. He describes the two natures in this way. What a wonder that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief, an infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. It's glorious. But how does this work? How do the two natures, how do two natures in one person? So the natures, the divine nature, the human nature, they remain separate, but they do interact. Both are necessary. So let me give you a couple examples here. In order to experience all of humanity, Jesus needed a human nature. But to experience it all and be tempted in every way yet without sin required a divine nature. In order to endure, uh, I'm sorry, in order to be an atoning sacrifice for humanity, you must have the nature of humanity. But in order to endure and withstand the wrath of God required his divine nature. These are examples of how the two natures are separate, but they interact And there's this mysterious union. Kids, if you want to learn a fancy word, hypostatic union. But in the same way, we we talk about the Trinity having mystery. We talked about that last week. We don't exactly know how all of this works together. The same is true with Christ's two natures. How can a person have two natures within one person? There's mystery there. But one of the keys to understanding this is that while Jesus' divine nature means he's infinite, omnipresent, and all-knowing, in the incarnation, in his earthly ministry, some of his divine attributes were limited. They were not done away with or changed or removed, but limited for a time. Again, there's mystery here. One of the ideas that the incarnation helps us to see and and combat against false ideas. There's false ideas in this world about how this world works, but the incarnation helps us to understand and combat against them. The incarnation brings divine and human together. The spiritual and the physical are both important and they work together. Our world tends to want to run to one extreme or the other. The names for this are are Gnosticism or materialism. So Gnosticism is the belief that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. The physical material world is bad. And so we need to escape the physical to reach a higher understanding where we're 
free from our physical bodies. But the incarnation goes against that because Jesus took on human flesh. If the physical world was inherently bad, why would Jesus take it on and claim it good? Even in our world that experiences the effects of sin in the physical world, it's still a world that God created. and He is at work redeeming this world. Don't fall into the idea that the spiritual, apart from the physical, is somehow more holy or better. This world was meant was meant to reflect God's glory. And in that, we are spiritual and physical beings. And no matter how advanced the virtual world becomes, it cannot replace real physical interaction with one another, real physical experiences. So Gnosticism, that's one pole. The other pole is materialism. And I don't mean materialistic, like just wanting too many things and buying things, but the larger belief that our world is only made up of physical things. That all we can physically see and touch is what this world is made of. And this causes people to believe that only the material matters. That only my physical body matters. And there's nothing beyond our physical world. But the incarnation combats this kind of thinking too. That we see both physical and spiritual matter. Well, not only did Jesus take on flesh, but the verse goes on to say that he dwelt among us. God's presence is with man. One of the names given to the son is Emmanuel, which means God with us. This idea of dwelling among man points to one of the major questions in the Bible. And that question is, how can a sinful people be in the presence of a holy God? Adam and Eve dwelt in the presence of God. Until they rebelled and they had to be removed from the garden. Their sin meant they could not remain in God's holy presence. So they were expelled from the garden. The garden was then guarded. The gate of the garden was guarded by cherubim with fiery swords. So there was no way to get back in there. There was no immediate way to return for Adam and Eve. But there was still the hope that someday return a return to presence with God would be possible. This word that's used for dwelling, it is similar to uh, talking about the tabernacle. That God, when God dwelled in the midst of Israel, it was in a temporary tent. So it speaks to the temporary dwelling during the incarnation. In the tem- in the tabernacle, there were specific instructions on how to approach God in the Holy of Holies, lest they be consumed. It couldn't be a permanent presence. It couldn't be face-to-face. But this was a means to be in the presence of God, even with their sin. Later, that presence of God was found in the temple. But then that, that was taken away because of Israel's unfaithfulness. When they were sent into exile, the temple was destroyed. But now, with the advent of the Son, with the incarnation, God will dwell with man again in an even greater way. At the end of the sermon, we'll look a little closer at how the spiritual and physical will ultimately come together in the future in an even more glorious way.
The word was made flesh. And secondly, his glory was witnessed. There are two witnesses in this passage that we'll look at, both named John. First, John the Apostle, the writer of the gospel, and then John the Baptist. So let's look at John the Apostle first at the end of 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John the Apostle and the other disciples saw firsthand the glory of God, the glory of the Son. They saw him do miracles. He turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. He healed the sick and the lame. He fed 5,000, walked on water, opened the eyes of the blind. He rose Lazarus from the dead. And then through the Holy Spirit, resurrected from the dead himself. And these signs of glory were all witnessed by people. Sometimes many people. Thousands saw him. And this was predicted in the prophets. Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Apostle witnessed this glory of God through the Son. He was there at some of the most glorious moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there at his arrest. Jesus even calls out to John from the cross. And John was there at the empty tomb after Jesus rose from the dead. He saw all these things firsthand. And he recorded them for our benefit. The second witness is John the Baptist. Look at verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He precedes the king. Jesus came after John on the timeline of history, but he is before John on the cosmic timeline. John is also not only pointing to, to a, a, a timeline that he is before him, but that he is greater than John the Baptist. He's pointing to the greatness of Jesus. Jesus has a greater rank in the sense that he is before John. So even though he comes after in one way, He's before John in more than one. Jesus is greater in rank and in time. John the Baptist came for repentance, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John knew his role. He was a witness and he prepared the way for something greater. He came to prepare the way. Jesus came as the way. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, John said. John saw the glory of the Son and in response realized his role. And he said, he must increase and I must decrease. So there were witnesses. But witnessing God's glory, there were plenty of people that saw the glory of the Son, but didn't truly see the glory of the Son. And that witnessing God's glory can only happen with the eyes of faith. Again, thousands saw him, but not everyone recognized who he truly was. Some scoffed and asked, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Others were curious. Still others hated him. John wrote all these things down as a witness. And he wrote that we would believe. 
This is the greatest history book ever written. It's much more than a history book, but it is the true account of God's plan of redemption. And it takes place in human history. This is how we can know the truth about God, humanity, and the living word that bridges the two. The purpose of John's gospel, which he he writes in chapter 20, the purpose was for him to witness to the son's glory. And then he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. So these signs are signs of the glory of the father through the son. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So there's another group of people who witnessed Jesus as well. The group who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And the same call goes out for us. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when we do, we have eternal life. If you're here this morning, which group are you in? Are you familiar with the life of Jesus, but you leave it at that? That's not enough. You must believe that Christ is who he says he is in here. You must believe that Jesus is the God-man and the only one able to save your sins. You must repent and believe this good news. Kids, that goes for you too. If you've been here for a while, you have parents who love Jesus. You've heard a lot about Jesus. But do you know if you have eternal life? And how do you know? Don't take that lightly or dismiss it because you're familiar with information about Jesus. Do you actually know him as the one who can save you from your sins and grant you eternal life? We move to the third point. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Where does this grace come from? The fullness that's talking about here is the father. It's from the father and comes through Jesus to us. Out of the fullness of God, we receive grace. And again, we see how the persons of the Godhead work together to carry out the work of God. God was gracious throughout scripture. We see this in the Old Testament, many places. A few years ago, Pastor Dave preached through the book of Ruth. And there's a Hebrew word that keeps coming up in the book of Ruth. It's called hesed. And it's a a Hebrew word that's hard to capture easily in English. It's a, a very rich word. But words like steadfast love and undeserved kindness and covenant faithfulness all contribute to the meaning of hesed. And the closest equivalent is this New Testament idea of grace. And the word grace is sometimes too familiar to us. We don't think of how actually astonishing and incredible it is. It's getting what we don't deserve. And simply put, we don't deserve anything from God aside from judgment for our rebellion. There's many instances of God's kindness towards his people in the Old Testament. He rescued them from slavery. He provided manna and water from a rock. 
You rescued them many times from invading nations. And as we saw previously, God provided ways for people to dwell in the presence of God through the tabernacle and the temple. He provided atonement for sin. Every instance of God not destroying them is actually a sign of grace. And in talking about the grace of Jesus here in our passage, John starts with a comparison to Moses. Look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So hopefully it's easy to see there's a comparison between the law through Moses and grace through Jesus. But don't make the wrong comparison that it's, it's law versus grace, as if they're completely opposed to one another. The law itself was a form of grace. Through the law, God revealed his character and his moral code. In other words, God provided boundaries for his people. If you stay within the boundary, there's blessing and goodness. And if you stray, there's curse and consequence. Now, where we run into trouble is when we think that through obedience to the law, we can attain salvation. One commentator describes it this way, describing the the use of the law and how it works. He says, the law is the law for God's kingdom. Where converted into a way of salvation, the law is perverted. Where the law represents the government and obedience of faith, there the law fulfills its God-given purpose. So the law is not bad when it's used properly. Now, in our sin, we're unable to obey the law perfectly. So it acts as a mirror to our hearts. We know God's written law, and we break it. But the law itself isn't bad. It's us. So John is not saying that Jesus undoes the law or dismisses it and does away with it. He came as an even greater word. He came to fulfill the law and give us grace. And this is sometimes called his active obedience. That he obeyed the law his entire life. I want you to think about that for a second. He experienced all kinds of hard things in life, but he never broke God's commandments. Jesus had brothers. Do you think they ever annoyed one another? Do you think there were times that Jesus got smacked by James or Jude? Other places that he was tired When we tire, that's when sin tends to come out more easily. But not with Jesus. He obeyed at every single turn. I would encourage you, try this week to go through the Ten Commandments. At at our family discipleship at G2G, the older and the younger kids are, are learning the Ten Commandments. Go through them and try to identify how Jesus fulfilled them, all ten of these. Because of his sinless record, he could atone for our sins. He was the spotless lamb without blemish, the perfect sacrifice. And not only did he atone for our sins on the cross, but then he takes that perfect record and gives it to us, his perfect record of righteousness. So we get both forgiveness of sins and righteousness credited to us. From the fullness of God, Jesus gives us grace upon grace. Let's look at the final point, that we have seen God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There are a number of examples in the Old Testament of people seeing God and their first response is assuming they will die. 
People knew that they could not see God and live. Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, but his life was delivered. A similar thing happens to Samson's parents in the book of Judges. And by the way, I should mention the angel of the Lord often is a form of the pre-incarnate Christ. So people saw the pre-incarnate Christ in, in the form of the angel of the Lord. But a similar thing happens to Samson's parents in Judges 13. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. This is a, a pattern throughout the Old Testament. People recognizing if, if they have an encounter with God, they should be frightened. We could point to other accounts of people seeing God and recognizing they should die. Isaiah, even Moses had to hide in the cleft of a rock in order to behold God's glory. If he saw it full on, he would be consumed. So now we come to the New Testament and the incarnation. And it's, we can behold the glory of God and not die. How can that be? This is another wonder of the incarnation. That the son through the incarnation has revealed the glory of God to mankind. And mankind not being consumed. We can behold him and not die. And that is amazing. And one of the questions you might have is, well, I actually technically haven't seen Jesus. How does that work for me? How does that work for us? It's true. None of us lived during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. But what was revealed during the incarnation, people witnessed it. People preserved it for us. We have the word of God. We can see his word and believe. We do encounter Jesus through scripture We do encounter the presence of God through corporate worship, for example. We do behold Jesus through faith. At the end of John's gospel, Thomas, the the disciple, is there, and he needs to see the physical risen Christ. So he has to see his hands and his feet. And Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. We must believe by faith and not by sight. But this won't always be the case. There's still more to the incarnation. This isn't always the part we remember. But the resurrected Christ is still the incarnate Christ. He did not shed his humanity when he returned to the Father's side. He remains a man forever. He possesses both divine and human natures in one person forever. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Only now he's glorified. Revelation 1 gives us this description of what he looks like now and forever. I read this passage last year when I I preached on the incarnation. But it's so important that we look ahead to this glorified picture of Christ. So this is John writing as well. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe 
and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. While the glory of Christ wasn't fully seen by all during his incarnation and earthly ministry, when we see him at his second return, all will see his glory and recognize him. But he remains the God-man. He remains both divine and human. But this isn't all. Just as the word was made flesh to dwell among us, ultimately we will dwell in the presence of Jesus Christ. We will see this glorified Christ and we will dwell with him. So again, in Revelation, this is where we're going. This is what we need to hope in. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is with man. That question that I asked earlier, how can a sinful people be with a holy God? This is the answer. And it's through Christ that we can actually do that. This is the original vision for the garden, and it will be fully seen. Grace longed for this reality. The hope for the Christian dwelling forever in the new heavens and the new earth with the glorified Christ in the middle. It will be a physical place where spiritual and physical perfectly meet. We will no longer experience the corruption of this world and all things will be made new. That's where we're going. And all who trust in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, We'll see that we will see him face to face and not die. So here's my conclusion. When Jesus came, he came as a man. He didn't lose his divine nature, but he took on a second nature in one body. He came to reveal the invisible God. He was the greater tabernacle and he dwelt with man. He was a better witness to the glory of the father He was a better word than the law, a better Moses, because he brought grace upon grace. He made God known and secured a glorious future for his people through his death on the cross and his resurrection. So we will see him someday. We'll see him face to face without sin in glorified bodies and dwell in his presence forever. This is the point of Advent and to celebrate the incarnate Christ. So let me close with a verse from 1 Timothy 3. It's this great little, almost like a hymn. 
It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory.